number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A new year, a new start. Uh, the stock market was up today. Uh, almost 200 points for the Dow. And uh, that's a good indication. Are we headed toward the recession that so many Americans fear? Or could we finally uh, get some handle on inflation and move in a uh, more positive and prosperous direction? A lot of this is uh, very dependent upon what our leaders do. In uh, the White House, well, not expecting too much, but there are literally millions of Americans, tens of millions of Americans who are expecting something and some progress from the new Republican House of Representatives, no matter how shaky their majority may be. But then again, there are others who predict that uh, the Republican majority in the House of Representatives will now uh, refuse to raise the debt ceiling, and that is being described as a potential catastrophe of major proportions, not only for the economy of the United States, but for the world economy. So where do you go for the truth on this? Uh, and the one name that came to our minds immediately was Steve Forbes. He is the chairman and editor-in-chief of Forbes Media. He is host of the uh, webcast, What's Ahead, and the co-author of the best-selling book, Inflation, What It Is, Why It's Bad, and How to Fix It. And he was a presidential candidate twice who educated America. He really did on the failures of our tax system, which uh, may be getting worse and worse. Uh, Steve, it's a great pleasure speaking to you, and Happy New Year. And Happy New Year to you, Michael. Really enjoy being with you. Thank you. Well, my question right now is, is at the end of August or maybe even the middle of August or maybe even the end of July, at some point uh, they're going to need to borrow more money to pay bills that Congress has already incurred. And what seems to be omnipresent in the media is that if they don't raise the debt ceiling, if they don't allow Congress and the government to borrow more money uh, to pay off the debts they've already uh, imposed, if they don't do that, the economy would suffer a, a severe uh, sort of jolt that would impact every single American and probably every person on earth. Do you believe it's that serious an issue? Uh, it's only going to be, uh, well, first will be the first time we haven't made timely payments on our debts, even though uh, we've inflated away the debts in the past. But uh, to, to, to the point on the debt ceiling, if there is a temporary halt, everyone in the bond market believes the U.S. government will end up uh, making the payments with interest. Uh, so they don't feel you're going to get a sovereign default like you've had with other countries, Argentina and others. Uh, however, what it will do is uh, jolt confidence that uh, this uh, government, especially people looking from overseas, is capable of governing itself. Uh, that was the embarrassment about the speaker's fight, uh, why they didn't sit down beforehand and hash uh, what is perfectly good agreement out beforehand. Who knows? But they didn't. So we had this uh, spectacle. And uh, this will be another because the, a lot of Republicans want to use 
uh, the debt ceiling as a means to affect big budget cuts. But if the Republicans get their act together, gain confidence and come up with a reasonable package that the public can understand and support, uh, they might get something. But government shutdowns rarely work in favor of Congress. We saw that back in the 1990s when then-Speaker Newt Gingrich, Republican, uh, went in a government shutdown against Bill Clinton. Clinton won that battle. Uh, Barack Obama, 2013, the Republicans tried it again with, with Congress. did not work out politically. So I hope they uh, come up with something that sounds reasonable to the public, and uh, then maybe they can get some concessions before voting uh, to raise the debt ceiling and making the point that uh, rules have to be changed in the future in government finance, which they're already starting to work towards. In terms of the government spending, uh, there was this uh, very controversial and, and very flawed and uh, very irresponsible in any regards omnibus bill. But their one good aspect of the omnibus bill was uh, what most people conceded to be needed investments in national defense. Uh, do you, Steve, because I we haven't spoken about this specifically, uh, do you believe that uh, the Congress was actually right in that aspect of the spending to pump more money into building up America's military resources? Uh, the answer is yes, irresponsibly, for which it hasn't been called to account on in so much the media. The Biden administration was proposing real cuts in the defense budget when you factor in inflation. Utterly inadequate pay for many of our people in uniform at a time when China's in a major military buildup, especially with its Navy, we're shrinking our Navy at the same time they're increasing their Navy. They have no more ships. And people say, well, their quality technologically is not as good as ours. Yeah, but they're catching up, and uh, you reach a point where quantity uh, is uh, our, uh, best qu uh, quality. And that's what the Chinese are moving towards. So uh, to uh, And then the talk of Republicans, oh, we might cut the budget uh, in terms of the military. Some of them making noise about utterly irresponsible, where reform can be made. Positive reform is the whole procurement system, which is a disaster, where you can get real savings and apply those savings to get our uh, the weaponry that we need. And the other thing they keep talking about, Michael, is cutting back on aid to Ukraine. The amount of total aid we've given to Ukraine, military aid, not economic aid, but military aid, equals about what we spent for 20 years each month in Afghanistan and Iraq. And much of what we supplied Ukraine are weapon systems that were headed for the junk pile. So uh, this, this, and also, unlike uh, some other things we've done in the past, Ukraine is the front line of the fight for democracy today. That's where it's at. So it's not just defending, helping Ukraine defend itself. It's ultimately defending ourselves, our security. One of the one of the points that actually uh, was made on uh, by Scarborough today was that. This uh, talk by Republicans of cutting the defense budget by Republicans is a great gift to Biden because one of the reasons that um, many, many, many of the Republicans I know, one of the reasons I myself am still proud to be a Republican is because it's the party most supportive of our military that understands that there are evil actors in this world. And they yes. have not gone away. And that uh, peace through strength, as President Reagan famously defined it, is the only path. That's right. 
And uh, why we keep having to relearn that lesson is astonishing, just as why we can't learn the lessons about inflation, which has been around for 3,000 years. Uh, But anyone who has any doubt about the need to help Ukraine, just go online, go to uh, YouTube or whatever, and uh, look up on a search engine, Czechoslovakia 1938, uh, what Chamberlain, the British prime minister, called this obscure country far away. And uh, look what happened when uh, they ignored it and what it led to. So uh, Ukraine is their fight and our fight. And the idea that we can get defense on the cheap is preposterous. Unfortunately, defending oneself is not an easy or cheap proposition. Okay, so now the the big question. And and Steve, you, you laid out these ideas so well, as I mentioned before, in your presidential campaigns. But... Uh, how do we pay for it all? Isn't the key reforming our tax system? Uh, we will get to that with Steve Forbes, uh, and it's such a pleasure to speak to him. The clarity that you'll find in his book, the book is called Inflation, what it is, why it's bad, and no question about that, and how to fix it. Uh, and there's no question about Steve Forbes' ideas working better than the lack of ideas you hear from many Republicans and the destructive ideas you hear from most Democrats. Uh, We will be right back uh, with more with Steve Forbes coming up on The Medved Show. The Michael Medved Show. All across America. This is The Michael Medved Show. Some of Steve Forbes' most recent pieces, uh, like the one about the expensive and harmful truth about electric vehicles. Uh, Is it necessary that uh, your gas-guzzling car has to go away and disappear? Uh, Read Steve Forbes, and you'll get some perspective. He's the author of the best-selling book, Inflation, What It Is, Why It's Bad, and How to Fix It. Uh, Steve You made popular uh, and convinced uh, millions of your fellow citizens about the need for structural tax reform, not just trimming around the edges, not just uh, hiring a bunch of new IRS agents, but actually changing the way we tax people. Whatever happened to the appetite for real reform of a tax system that is an embarrassing mess? Well, I think uh, if the issue is going to come to the fore, uh, Michael, in 2024, uh, there are going to be several candidates running for president. And I think a couple of them are going to uh, want to have an issue that galvanizes people, cuts across party lines, cuts across uh, any uh, category you want in this country today. Uh, People know the current system is utterly corrupt, utterly understandable, brings out the worst in all of us. And so a number of countries have the flat tax, and I think you're going to uh, see support for it again. What's amazing is how many people in the political world uh, lack what you might call political entrepreneurship, uh, taking a chance on something where you know a lot of special interests are going to fight you. I remember when I ran back in 1996, H&R Block 
sent a <laughs> very misleading uh, letter to the voters in New Hampshire warning of the impending end of civilization if the flat tax came along. You know, your hair would fall out, your pet would uh, get sick and all that kind of thing. And so uh, it's just a matter of somebody putting it at the forefront and running with it. And I think there's appetite among these new Republicans in Congress for a big change. So I'm uh, optimistic, again, that we'll finally get this issue out to the, uh, the forefront and get a real change. And uh, uh, do you believe that uh, someone can come along to explain how this works and why this works? In other words, the, the big argument that uh, the uh, ordinary American voter might say is, why should I pay the same tax rate? as somebody who's earning billions of dollars because he can he can afford to pay more why shouldn't he pay more well as you can see with the current tax code do you take uh, donald trump's uh, tax returns <laughs> which uh, were illegal were, were released as uh, several years he didn't pay income tax he didn't violate the law that's because of the huge complexity of the code so the nice thing about a flat tax is if you make it you pay it done and uh, I mentioned uh, the IRS says we spend six billion hours a year filling out tax forms. We spend two to four hundred billion dollars a year complying with this monstrosity. And just go back 20 years. Imagine if those that over 100 billion hours, literally trillions of dollars had gone for new products, new services, new cures for diseases. How much better off we'd all be. The opportunity cost is enormous. So uh, in terms of uh, on the sales tax. You don't pay a higher sales tax if you have a higher income. You pay it on a, a, a flat rate. There'd be exemptions for adults and for children. A family of four, for example, would pay no federal income tax on the first $52,000 of, of a salary and only 17 cents on the dollar above that. No tax on savings. So uh, I think people would love the simplicity. And uh, if you want to get collect more from the rich, you uh, make the code simpler. And the history shows time and time again, when you have low tax rates, the, the amount of money, income tax paid by the rich goes up, and the proportion of the income tax they pay goes up. Just one quick statistic. When Reagan became president, top 1% paid about 18% of the federal income taxes. When he cut the rates during the 1980s, it went over, to, went over 30%. So if you want to tax the rich, make the code simple. And they'll focus their energies on more productive things than uh, hiring accountants and lawyers to avoid the code. Which, uh, which, I, I, the number of states have gone to a state income taxes. I and I live in a state without a state income tax that we're trying to defend, but they've made yeah. <laughs> uh, flat taxes for state tax rates, and that has not been the end of civilization, has it? No, it hasn't. And a number of states have uh, put themselves on the path to a flat tax. Uh, Arizona is going down to 1.5%, and at that rate, they may eventually get rid of the state income tax altogether. And so I think uh, what has happened, and you've, it was a good point you made, uh, over five states, six states in the past year have a, are on the path to a flat tax. A number of states cut taxes of various sorts. So I think the appetite to lower the burden on the American people is growing. Uh, even though Washington doesn't seem to have gotten the message, they will, I think, after 2024 when we can focus on real issues like that. Um, first of all, if you were advising the new Speaker of the House, uh, what should he be 
uh, prioritizing uh, some actual reform and legislation or do you think they're right to prioritize investigations of, um, of potential and obvious misdeeds by the Biden administration and the Biden family? Oh, I think you have to do both. You have to expose wrongdoing, even if it's uh, not enough for criminal convictions. What's happened in recent years is scandalous uh, what uh, the, the authorities have done, the FBI and others. Absolutely horrific, and that should be exposed. And even, you know, despite statutes of limitations, uh, people need to know what actually happened. And on the legislative front, uh, they passed a, a bill uh, doing away with those 87,000 new IRS agents who would go after middle-class people and small businesses. That's where the money is. Uh, people like uh, uh, billionaires like Elon Musk, uh, have, uh, they, they, they get uh, scrutinized quite closely. Uh, that's not where the untapped money is. It's the middle class. And so uh, they, they did that. I think they should pass legislation opening up federal lands for uh, gas and oil exploration. We have it here. No reason why we should be cozying up to thugs in Venezuela and elsewhere to get their oil. We should use our own. So a lot of these things won't get through the Senate or will get vetoed by uh, uh, Biden, but it would set the stage for a real debate in 2024. So uh, they shouldn't be shy about putting forth uh, consider considered proposals on taxes, on regulation. I mean, start with uh, banning gas stoves. Uh, <laughs> let, let, let's put the kibosh on that and let Biden defend that regulation. Every she, He won't be able to go to a restaurant again. Every chef in the country will have their pans and pots ready to throw at them, getting rid of their gas stoves. Right. That's a, a, a big segment of America you don't want to offend. Uh, Steve Forbes, Happy New Year. I hope you'll join us again soon. It is so terrific to get your perspective. Uh, when we come back, a um, challenge about dealing with mental illness and homelessness and a compassionate challenge, which we will get to coming up on The Medved Show. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. to ignore the homeless issue. I mean, you live in Seattle, it's, it's everywhere. And the fact that uh, government has limited ability to fix things, just look at the graffiti and the state of downtowns everywhere and the ridiculous rhetoric, uh, like Karen Bass, the new mayor of Los Angeles, who is dreaming of putting an end uh, to homelessness basically by spending more. And there is a, a really an editorial and op-ed that appeared in the New York Times over the weekend that is by a writer and screenwriter named Hilary DeVries. And what's so refreshing about it is it's not ideological, it's not one side or another. It's not angry, but it is heartbreaking. 
And she writes, uh, a few weeks before Mayor Eric Adams announced that New York would begin a big push to involuntarily hospitalize severely mentally ill homeless people, even if they pose no risk or harm to others, my sister was involuntarily admitted to a psychiatric unit in a city hospital. My sister is not homeless. She had been living in a studio apartment in Queens, but she has a serious mental illness. And in November, a neighbor called 911 after seeing my sister on the street carrying a chef's knife. I don't know why my sister was carrying a knife, but in the city's approach to identifying and caring for the mentally ill, the knife was key because she had a knife. The police determined that she posed a danger to others. Emergency medical service workers then took her to the nearest hospital with a comprehensive psychiatric emergency program, and she was involuntarily admitted to the behavioral unit three days later. Um, now her uh, legal guardian, now as her legal guardian, pardon me, she writes, I'm responsible for her financial and personal needs, including her medical care. I am navigating the section of New York's mental hygiene law known as Kendra's Law to get my sister the outpatient medical care she needs and which she refuses. Enacted in 1999, the law lets courts mandate assisted outpatient treatment for those like my sister whose mental illness is so severe that it makes them a danger to themselves or others, but who are unwilling or unable to comply with outpatient treatment. Because of her illness, my sister lacks all insight into her condition. She does not understand that the loss of her career, her co-op, her life in New York as she once knew it is because of her illness. She does not accept that I am her guardian, that she can no longer live unsupervised, and that the stray animals and injured birds and that she adopts have caused thousands of dollars in damage to the apartments I was able to sublet for her. She does not understand that she has become a danger to herself and others and needs medical treatment to safely live within the community. She continues. The doctor tells me that my sister is not responding to the oral antipsychotic medication and that her dosage will be increased. I tell her that my sister has a history of noncompliance on medication even while hospitalized and has refused all voluntary outpatient treatment. The doctor tells me she is open to considering a petition for court-mandated treatment under Kendra's law. My relief is short-lived. The social worker tells me my sister does not meet the law's criteria, that she needs two inpatient admissions within 36 months and has only one. I tell her that because my sister armed herself with a knife and the police determined that she posed a danger to others, that she does not qualify for mandated treatment under the law. She is unmoved and informs me that my sister will be discharged once she is stabilized. Discharged where? Where can I house my sister when she has been evicted or asked to leave every place she has lived in since she became ill? Where can I house her when she has no photo ID? 
and refuses to cooperate on obtaining a new one, without which I cannot check her into a hotel or even the YMCA. Where can I house her when there are years-long waiting lists for subsidized supportive housing? The social worker tells me that housing my sister is my responsibility if I am unable to provide it. The hospital will send her to a homeless shelter. My sister and I shared a bedroom, she writes, as uh, children. Uh, but it takes me a minute uh, to recognize the, uh, the thin, disheveled, gray-haired woman I see through the window. Then I see her wearied, puzzled expression, and I realize that she no longer recognizes me. She is less than 10 feet away, and I cannot reach the, across the decades and find the little sister I knew, the beautiful, hilarious, and talented person she once was. The nurse standing beside her hurries out from the ward. He tells me that my, try, my crying is not helping and that I am confusing and alarming my sister. I move away from the window so she can't see me anymore. It goes on, and there is no solution. And the fact is that we, we all want to believe that homeless people are down on their luck, and once you find a, uh, a, a little mini house for people to live in, it will all be better. But uh, it's not that simple. As Hillary... DeVries says in her powerful piece, she says, I leave the hospital in despair. I spend the rest of my time in New York uh, cleaning out the apartment in the private home where my sister had lived. I wear a K-94 mask and latex gloves to sort through her clothes, the trash. I arrange care for the stray cat that she tried to keep as a pet and attempted to feed with cans of tuna which uh, instead fed the mice infecting the room. I contact an exterminator, a remediation company, a plumber, and a painter to clean, decontaminate, and repair the apartment. And I am overcome with gratitude for the owner of the house who has tolerated my sister and her illness with otherworldly compassion. She has made not only my sister's life bearable, but also my own. As grateful as I am to her, she is not a substitute for adequate state-supported care. Housing the mentally ill will not be solved by the kindness of strangers, not when there are millions of people like my sister. This is tough to read, and it's a tough reality to see all around us. But at least you have a situation where Eric Adams, the mayor of New York, is making some moves in a positive direction. And the idea that, that homelessness is considered too sensitive to talk about as an issue impacting other people, and not just the relatives and the loved ones of people who are living on the streets, but the other people who live on those same streets or want to conduct businesses on those same streets or want to take their kids out to a park without the, the self-destructive degradation 
that many people are exposed to. They tried an experiment, deinstitutionalization. It was tried in the 1970s, and yes, when Reagan was governor of California, he participated in that. But isn't it time to recognize that doesn't, didn't, and will never work? We will be right back on The Medved Show. The Michael Medved Show. Medved show, uh, Steve Forbes referred to it when we had him on the air. They did uh, vote yesterday successfully in the House of Representatives. It was pretty much a party line vote, but the Republicans all got together to try to rescind the extra spending for 80, 87,000 new IRS agents. And uh, does this send a powerful message? It does. Is it ever going to become law? No, there is such a thing as a Democratic Senate that is not going to do that. And then there's a president who would veto it. And uh, But in terms of defining a Republican position, and a Republican position being that uh, creating a, a, a huge new expansion of government agents, and by the way, it's not all 87,000 at once, and some of it is meant of what would be canceled would be uh, as replacements for other agents. But honest to goodness, to take the people's money to invest in uh, more intensification of investigating people's personal business to take more of their money away, uh, that is uh, a, a success uh, for uh, the Republican House. And uh, Speaker Kevin McCarthy actually uh, celebrated that success, uh, banging his gavel. Clip 10. The yeas are 221 and the nays are 210. The bill is passed without objection. A motion to reconsider is laid on the table. <laughs> Promises made. Uh, he didn't say the rest. Uh, promises made, he can say promises kept because that was a promise. No one believed that they would actually persuade President Biden and the Democrats in the Senate. But it, it strikes a position that gives Republicans something to run on. And uh, this was uh, Adrian Smith, a Republican from Nebraska, one of the representatives who fought for that bill. Uh, here's what he said, clip nine. Uh, last night's legislation is about taxpayers. Uh, it's about empowering taxpayers who are trying to just do the right thing in, in paying their taxes uh, without having to face <clears throat> more and more IRS resources. I think randomly uh, out, uh, out to place all these audits across the economy <clears throat> without being as diligent and customer service oriented as they should be. 
And I, I told my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, let's work together to address the customer service needs that are absolutely needed uh, all across uh, the IRS uh, because there, there are problems. Uh, clearly, that, there's bipartisan agreement that there, there are problems at the IRS. So the first step is to draw back uh, these, these dollars that I think were so randomly placed uh, and then start over uh, so that we can meet the needs of, of taxpayers and the American people uh, all across uh, America. Uh, again, he obviously is not somebody who seems to be used to being on national TV, but that's a very good issue to uh, advance. And it seems to me that it uh, represents a one significant success. Uh, but reflecting on the much longer, more complicated process of actually electing a Speaker of the House and electing Kevin McCarthy, Lauren Boebert who only accommodated herself to uh, actually working with Kevin McCarthy as her speaker, her leader, at the very last minute, the very last stage, she at least felt that the entire five-day marathon of vote after vote after vote, there were 15 of them, first time in 100 years, she thought it was great. Listen, this is clip 11. This empowers every individual member of Congress, even the Democrats. That single member motion to vacate is for them as well. Uh, these single subject legislation uh, pieces that we're going to see, this is something that we have in 47 state legislatures. To have it on a federal level is massive. Um, so I'm proud that we took a few extra days to make sure that we get this right. It may look like chaos and dysfunction, but I'm a mom of four boys. That's a part of my everyday life. And really, last week was the most productive week I have experienced in Congress. Okay, uh, the most productive week when basically, and this is the difficulty, is all of the changes that um, that basically uh, Kevin McCarthy agreed to are dependent upon the Republicans uh, winning a uh, somewhat larger majority. Because if it, the majority is only four votes and it's going to be down to four votes because of that special election in Virginia, it's, uh, it's extremely questionable how much reform you can do, especially when there's a Democrat sitting in the White House. So the idea that that uh, week has been the most productive week she's ever accomplished, that, that really depends upon changing the image of the squabbling and angry and uh, uh, unable to agree or work together Republicans changing that image a little bit for the good. Now, do you change that image for the good with um, uh, basically attacking military expenditures? Uh, Joe Scarborough was eloquent and impassioned on that issue. Clip 12. These kooks are going to slash the defense budget and they're going to allow the democrats in the senate and joe biden to be the protectors of america's defense this republican party now supports the slashing of the defense budget wall yep. street journal editorial page and they support a full-scale war on the men and women who are the professionals and our intel communities. Good luck selling that in 24. You have just 
made Joe Biden's day. Okay. Can you can you really get any dumber politically? No, they I don't really think you can. can. Okay, we'll see. We'll see because there's still time left to achieve. Well, to achieve more positive results, uh, positive results in a new movie uh, by Anna Kendrick. Uh, it is. It is one of those films that the star of Pitch Perfect movies and a, a, a charming and Oscar-nominated actress plays, uh, well, you will see. But is it worth seeing? Now it's time for Medved's Entertainment Minute. Anna Kendrick portrays a stylish professional woman in New York City whose domineering abusive boyfriend won't tolerate her brief lakeside vacation with her two best friends in Alice Darling. Now playing in theaters. We are so glad that you came. We just really want you to relax. What am I going to do without you? I didn't know you were coming. Well, I'm sure Alice will explain it all later. Well, Alice can't explain anything because she's badly torn between loyalty to her friends, to her boyfriend, and to herself. Anna Kendrick is a fine actress, but this role is so unsympathetic and more pathetic than powerful. It's rated R for some harsh language, alcohol abuse, and tormented sex scenes. One and a half stars for Alice Darling, not a sweetheart of a movie. And on the Michael Medved Show uh, next time, coming up on Wednesday, a, a big book that's gotten a lot of attention uh, calls on some of America's most brilliant historians, people widely respected, to take a look at Myth America. The subtitle, Historians Take on the Biggest Legends and Lies About Our Past. So what does it say about those legends and, and why should be taken seriously at all. We'll be talking to one of the authors of uh, Myth America uh, coming up tomorrow. We'll also be speaking about a crusading conservative who uh, for years has been trying to help the eastern counties in the state of Oregon secede from the state. Now, we're not talking about a civil war. There's no Fort Sumter here. But there is a bill that seems to be making some progress to allow colonies, colonies, counties in the state of Oregon shift over to the state of Idaho. We'll be speaking to some of the people behind that movement. We'll also be speaking about the movement of prices in America. Yes, inflation continues to be a huge issue. But not everything has gone up in price. Some of it's gone up very sharply. There are other items, goods and services that have actually gone down. Why? And the Palestinians have accused Israel of a hideous war crime, training cows to spy on civilian populations. How'd they do it? We'll talk about that and much more next time in This Greatest Nation on God's Green Earth.